Listen to ordinary people who lead extraordinary lives. Their leadership styles forever impressed in the hearts and minds of people, be it in their professions, personal life, and or in communities by being an example of greatness. Be inspired by these personal stories and prepare to be both moved and motivated as Maurice Manley II, the serial entrepreneur, interviews present and future icons. Challenge yourself to recognize the leader that lives within so that you may continue to grow and experience amazing things in life. We are all capable of leadership. Take charge and lead up. This is episode number 39, Mastery of the Ego. As mental health issues become more relevant in today's society, it is imperative that we pay close attention to our state of being. Listen as health educator and behavioral analyst Alexander Molina breaks down the ego, self-mastery, and the revolution for globalization. His compassion for people and community leads to the collective goal of peace and harmony. Without further delay, I present to you Alexander Molina. Welcome back to another episode of Lead Up. I am your host, as usual, Maurice Manley, the serial entrepreneur. Today is going to be one of those episodes. In studio, we have... um, Explorer, adventure, navigator, Alexander Molina. He's also a health educator and a behavioral analyst. At the end of your name, you have these, these uh, I know it's an acronym, MPH. I've never seen that. What, what does that stand for? All right. For uh, those that are in the medical fields, that signifies Master of Public Health. And, okay. Uh, I'm not a big fan of putting that immediately at the end of my last name on an email or at any point because I don't think I have any mastery over it. <laughs> I'm still a student uh, within the discipline itself. And I think within everything that encompasses that discipline, which is life, which is health. Okay. Okay. I like, I, I typically like to go back to the genesis of uh, people's career in, in life, just to get a fundamental understanding and awareness of, where they were, how they were able to move from, you know, one point to, to the next. So at what age did you realize that you wanted to, that you wanted to dedicate your life work to uh, mental health and kids? That's a great question because let's say 2010, 2011, I was actually a fire Academy um, incoming student. I was, at Rio Honda Community College in Whittier, California. Mm-hmm. I was trying to figure out what exactly I wanted to do. I had an original plan to go to college, which was to run track, and I landed a few scholarships, D2, D3 schools. I, you know, I wasn't on Usain Bolt, but I had a booby miles incident, and I tore my hamstring on my first race my senior year. Mm. So my academics uh, standing wasn't uh, great, uh, and I had to figure out some ways. But I knew that I did pretty well in different realms of academics. People would say it's good and some would say it's bad, but I didn't really have one thing that I was really passionate about or good at. Hmm. I like to dabble in different things. So social justice, social work, anything that had to do with health and community was 
something that picked up momentum with time and you know throughout our conversation when when perhaps we talk about some global topics or my family background i would say that the seed was planted eons before i even came about into existence because i'm a product of of what i mentioned as in colonialism imperialism the history of the western hemisphere coming together since the slave trade across the atlantic and first contact with the indigenous nations of this continent mm. wow so <clears throat> we got a lot to unpack okay. i I want, <laughs> I want to make sure i pace myself because right. you saying that my mind is just going a whole nother so let me ask you some of these preliminary questions for the for audience that may not know what is a behavioral analyst okay so a behavior analyst a behavior technician somebody that provides applied behavior analysis which is an intervention hmm. it's not specifically attached to autism spectrum disorder or the treatment of because it can be applied to organizational business it can be applied to even your everyday think about your habits think about things that are important to you such as your paycheck your job, right? You go to work, you're reinforced positively with a check or with some income that allows you to buy what you need or what you want. And you continue to go to work because you know you're going to get that check. So it's a basic thing as you're getting something you want and you do the behavior that will get you what you want. Hmm. So a behavior analyst works in the realm of making sure that people, an individual, a group, an organization, or a population are meeting their objectives and goals and how they can shape behaviors. How can they manipulate conditions in the environment to get to their objective? Okay. So it's really about performance. The best way to get people to perform. Exactly. And dissecting anything you have to dissect to find out what's getting you there or what's stopping you from getting there. So that's an interesting topic. So in your professional opinion, what have you noticed? Are there some um, real unique, distinct patterns that, motivate people to perform besides money (laughs) that's the profound question that every philosopher has asked his class of humanity since i think the dawn of time right Uh but yeah i think i can answer this question from multiple angles uh to quickly just keep it on a practical sense of what i do on a job level i work with young adults and young children on the autism spectrum Mm -hmm. so we can have very high functioning to where people would call Asperger's um, for my for my audience members out here that are wondering what that is exactly. I want you to think of maybe the big bang theory, that character Sheldon, where he's very like in tune, very specific with what he wants and how he wants things done. Um, very, very naturally talented with numbers, patterns, memory, and, would typically do things that are very minuscule and make all the grand difference. So I think we met some individuals in our lives that have maybe demonstrated that. And then on the other hand, we have folks that are, are, I would say, for the lack of a better word right now, on the lower functioning level, which have language delays, which can't give you eye contact, which can't stand loud noises, are very sensitive to environmental changes. Hence, you can't change a routine. It will be World War Three and Four mm. when you do those things. So... Um, a behavior analyst goes in there and works with families, a community, and tries to manipulate the little things of the environment, home setting, educate the families and the community members so that they understand what autism really is, understand it fully in its its whole capacity, 
and so that we can you know lower those stigmas and now think about how we could apply these behavior manipulations on a population level to having people eat healthier to um, have people stop uh, taking drugs or smoke or uh, drinking alcohol on a heavy excessive level all of this is behavioral what we do every day to get up in the morning and motivation from the entrepreneur down to the to the you know just the honorary members that clean up our streets and you know work at the post office that's all behavior as well mm-hmm. so what causes the behavior or what because i i what i'm trying to get to mm-hmm. is in this life we all do certain things and some of us like i have conversations with people and i ask well, what made you do that? And a lot of people, well, I don't know. I just, but I know that it, there was something there. There was some kind of motivation, whether it was a thought, whether it was someone else um, pushing them in a certain direction. So between, amongst human beings, is there like one, two, maybe three key things that push us to an action is it is it spiritual is it family dynamic is it the, an internal belief system in their self um because i think those same things cause us to be in action that's 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 perfectly said now everybody has this handful of all those factors in the palms in their mm-hmm. palms they have the spiritual belief system they have what they're accustomed to culturally socially conditioned to mm-hmm. think do drink eat perform mm-hmm. um so we could talk about marriage in this sense how at what age are you expected to find your partner um or do specific milestones in your career oh by age 35 i should be a homeowner i should be mm-hmm. well up developed in my career causing all types of mayhem in young people's imaginations nowadays right um but I think something that is inevitable for everyone is this personal connection, this personal question of why do we do what we do? Yes. Why do we execute at the highest level of performance as a CEO? Why does your vision matter? Mm-hmm. Why does your plan to execute your vision matter more than the other? That has to do with an internal drive that I don't think you could ever measure with data. You can't ever measure with some some type of scientific analysis. Mm-hmm. And it's only something that could only be answered through time, through your own profound introspective analysis of yourself. Mm-hmm. And most importantly, regardless of your faith, uh, your specific faith belief system, I think it comes down to the question of, what can I offer to this world, to this existence that makes me feel complete? And like, there's nothing else missing, no empty void that cash materials can't fulfill. That has to be conversed with everybody you come into contact with. You know, we're easy to greet everybody. Hey, how are you doing today? I'm good. I'm doing fine. We're so quick to answer that question with that. I'm doing well. How about you? Sometimes we're not doing well. Right. Sometimes your business (laughs) is thriving. Yes. But what's causing it to thrive or what's causing it to not thrive? What is your personal mission today that makes yesterday different and today much more different? Mm. And how is it adding to your grand legacy, your grand collection? It's all piling up on top of each other like dirty laundry. (laughs) Wow. Okay, let's go. 
you mentioned something about mastery, right? Self-mastery. And, and, and I don't want to steal the shine and give too much away, but you stated that mastery is just in the illusion of the ego. <laughs> Explain that one. Oh, because I, I, I have this thing about that. We all should be masters of ourselves, Right. Yeah. But after hearing you say that, it made me pause and I had to say, well, man, if, if me mastering me is for the sole purpose of my ego and I, and I understand the ego and what that does, I may have to think, rethink this whole mastery thing. So go, go ahead. Um, unpack all of that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Everybody take a vacation for three weeks. Let's talk. Okay. <laughs> all right. So the ego, now we can get into Freud psychology and unpack all of that from an academic standpoint, but let's, let's keep it real basic exactly. because, you know, I, I don't want to assume that people know all of the educational stuff. Exactly. And as I mentioned with the, with measuring things you can't measure these things ego is there it exists within all of us ego allows us to accomplish grand things in life yes out of vengeance out of some trying to prove something to someone that you know gave you a hard time in the past to our own parents and family members or spouses or partners or friends acquaintances those at the workplace the same man that sees me down the street taking the bus and now I'm, and, uh, I'm rolling in a Lamborghini or whatnot. Ego is involved into everything. And there is some type of awareness needed for that because even though you can accomplish gigantic things with that, it can also blow up your head, literally making you think that you're grander than life, that you're the most significant being on this block, this planet, this household, this community. Now, the individual needs to be aware of that. And believe me, we're living in that era that self-work, this self-help new age-ism is thriving as a business. How many self-help books can you find on the shelves at a bookstore or on Amazon's you know, top-selling books of how to work on yourself and reverse engineer this negative thinking of the ego? Mm -hmm. But no book is going to do that for you. It can only show you some instruments, some tools, some insight into how your ego is controlling you your instinctive animalistic drives are controlling you when it comes to intimacy when it comes to fulfillment whether it's food alcohol drug consumption or other addictions that are finding their way in today's modern world such as our screen time that's a big one hmm. our screen time yeah now when we talk about learning about how to control the ego for the individual to translate it to the world, to the population, to the community, the town, and then the whole grand planet, we're talking about some mutual problems that we share as a community, as a global community. Hmm. Greed does not see no flag. Greed sees no creed, color. Right. You can bring an investment of money to any population that's been destructed by poverty and it will do some wonders, but that greed that follows money will intervene and at some point change somebody's behavior mm. because they weren't aware of how their ego got involved that one process. And just to not take too much more of, of the conversation in this direction, let's think about the typical trajectory of that movie star, that villain, that Scarface Tony Montana character, that mm -hmm. artist that rises to the top 
First you get the money, then you get the power, and then you get the respect. Well, when you get that money and then you get that respect, you also get a big ego that starts manipulating your everyday little detailed choices. Yes, yes. So, and and that's what you speak of in terms of the the self mastery. So maybe is it is it the lack of mastery that creates the illusion of mastery for the ego? Does that make sense? Yeah, it, it's it's the lack of awareness of this. Uh, student role that we have okay we're, we we're quick to think master doctor or whatever title that comes into our practice uh-huh. through our accomplishments but we're students trying to attain this mastery right that it will never really settle in because the mastery is the journey and that's a very cliche thing to say hmm. but the mastery begins as soon as you realize that you will never be the master. And I don't know which philosopher of ancient times I'm, I'm <laughs> quoting here, but please know I don't like plagiarism. <laughs> right, right. Um, but what I'm trying to say is that you, be, you can become a master at age two when you realize that you're never really going to get a full grip of life ever. You're going to figure out as you go. So we're always learning, we're always growing, and we're always evolving. So we never fully get it, Right. Right. But the quest for this mastery is what keeps us performing mm-hmm. and behaving in a certain kind of way. Exactly. And you would you say that that's the healthier way to go about it is is always seeking and searching for more to to be more. Uh, that's, that's a wonderful question, because I, as you asked me that, I'm trying to ask myself that right now. As we speak. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the journey is beautiful because. You're out there, you're exploring internally, inside and out of yourself, and you're out there in the world talking to new people, uh, meeting new folks that come into your life and trying to realize that they all have some type of a significant Mm -hmm. addition or Mm -hmm. contribution to your life and your journey. Um, But when you realize that you're seeking things out for some type of fulfillment so that you can feel better about yourself or, again, try to prove something, then you're traveling on that journey path for the wrong reason. Yes. What you should do is walk on that trail, climb that mountain, climb that tree, jump off that cliff into that water for the sole purpose of just the experience. Mm. Just the experience. I, again, there's so many angles to this, but what if we just realize that we're, we're special? I don't deny that. But what if we're just tiny little specks sometimes? And what our number one mission that day on a Sunday, on a Monday, is to really exist and just enjoy the things around you. Just to really take in that breath of that view, that interaction that you have with your loved one or that stranger that gave you eye contact and acknowledged you that day and said, hi, how are you? And honestly, genuinely wanted to know how you were feeling that day. Right. That is the core of the journey. Yeah, I like that. And that and that resonates with, with my spirit because I'm a firm believer that we were put here to do two things. One, to serve. And two to experience to to the fullest whatever that means you know and experience is different for different people but i totally agree i just wanted to add my two cents if <laughs> i like those two cents i like those two cents i'm taking them with me <laughs> it, now is there any way for a person to spot mental health issues before it actually becomes an issue or is it something that just kind of like the boogeyman just creeps up on you and you look up and like man i have i'm crazy now yeah. Oh, wow. Um, for all my listeners out here, um, this one's up for all of you because we can all 
add our two cents to this one. Okay. So mental health, illness, a disorder, a complication. I, you know, we could use that word disease sometimes, I guess, mm-hmm. but it does pop up like the boogeyman at our door. And when it comes, it plans on staying. It plans on sitting down on your couch. Wow. Eating three meals a day with you and learning with you, dancing with you, playing with you. And then eventually learning your behaviors and patterns so that it can take a full control. Mm. I just painted a picture of what mental health looks like for some folks on a daily basis. It's like a silhouette, a reflection in the mirror, a shadow. The signs and symptoms vary for the different disorders. We have the DSM diagnostic manual that will allow a clinician or a psychiatric professional to give you that official stamp diagnosis, right? And what I would love the viewers to know is that it doesn't take a highly professional professional <laughs> to realize that something is off. It takes a lot of introspective reflection, looking in. How do you feel? What's different? How are you relating to people, talking to people? Are you alienating yourself or are you putting yourself out there too much? There's some imbalance happening. I would love the viewers to know that there's many resources and I cited the CDC centers for disease control and prevention Mm -hmm. that has a basic, you know, one-on-one of what different things look like. And here in the States and in the world, when we think of crazy, most likely people are talking about schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. Schizophrenia is an ugly one because it literally feels like the boogeyman is on top of your head, tilting your head in what direction he or she wants you to turn to. And you can't just separate from that. It causes you to have hallucinations and you start fabricating reality into something that it isn't. And from personal experience with not on just a work level, but with a personal experience to loved ones in my life, I've seen schizophrenia haunt, break up families and, you know, destroy something that's potentially beautiful, but it can't because it's the hallucinations and people's refusal to get help or the stigma stigmatization from others doesn't even give that a, a chance to thrive towards a positive tomorrow. So everyone, please pay attention to how you're feeling. Try to look at the things that are leading to that. What's changed at your workplace? What's changed with your loved one, your social relationships? Look at your diet. Please look at what you're eating, what you're consuming, those basic things, just nutrition alone, water intake, the air you breathe, the environment that you live in, Mm. and how you feel about your placement in the physical world is a big one for mental health again purpose nipsey said it best purpose yeah that's good advice thanks for sharing that because um as we know the mental health issue is a big issue now and it seems like it's growing rampant and it's picking up speed more and more as we um move through this life and it's so strange and maybe you can add to this I don't remember, and maybe because I didn't pay attention, but in the 80s, 70s, 80s, 90s, I don't remember mental health being this big the way it is now. And I don't know if that's because it just wasn't publicized and we didn't know what to call it or if it was because of the drug epidemic that was taking place. And maybe the reason why the drug epidemic was the way it was, maybe maybe that was a mental health issue that led to that. I don't know. But now it almost seems like it's a, a, a trend. It's normal. It's, it's normalized. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that question has been asked me before many a times. 
I didn't see that growing up. I didn't know about autism. We just, you know, we had that one special kid in class or, you know, we right. know he was mentally delayed, but, you know, he still, he lived like, he or she lived their lives. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, yes, on, on the medical level, sometimes, many a times, those cases didn't get diagnosed, which is a problem because when you don't have mm-hmm. the diagnosis rate or the number of folks getting diagnosed with a specific mental health problem or health problem, such as cancer, how can you treat it when you don't even know that it's there? Yes. So that is potentially a big factor during the, you know, the prior decades. But, you know, a different professional or whatnot would say something differently. And the statistics, you know, they can be provided. But I, I want to hit this topic. Mm-hmm. What if mental health now is surfacing more than ever because our world is evolving at a pace that's globalizing? It's evolving at a pace that is a little too fast for us. That treadmill is a little too fast for humanity right now. We've reached tremendous heights of technological advancement. We got phones that we can talk into and see our faces and then take our face on that phone and send it to the next continent and be like, hey, I'm FaceTiming you. That's something straight out of a Star Wars movie years ago, you know? Right. Back in the right. 70s, you'd be like, what? Darth Vader? <laughs> you know? Um, but what is it that is changing in our daily lives as a society that's causing people to feel different about themselves. What is the rise of social anxiety having to do with people's reputation status on social media? Why is it that we have, you know, recommendations and guidelines for screen time for kids? Cause we know it's addictive and it's hijacking our neural systems. And, you know, for the public um, notice for this, why is it that, we know we're constructing industries and jobs that are teaching professionals to pay attention to how much time people spend on the screens. Right. We're making money off of this. That's one piece. But in terms of the mental health, it is now the conditions in our everyday that are shaping new behaviors that shape our psyche and our biological system. So, not only is our mental health getting affected, but it's happening at the same time that our physical health is either getting poorer or better. It's a question to ask yourself as you think about this. Mm-hmm. You mentioned earlier about, and just now, uh, globalization and the, the globalization revolution. Real briefly, explain what globalization is and then how do you specifically Alexander, how do you lead up the charge for global globalization? Okay. So I, I mentioned that globalization is a beautiful thing many times before because without that, we wouldn't have the wonderful ideas that have to do with food, music, photography, film, language, you name it, being traded and exchanged all around the world to make us a little bit more globally connected to one another. Years back, people on a separate continent wouldn't really know what you're up to because there was no way. Globalization has happened before history has been even written on a page. Mm. Let's say for the sake of our U.S. history lesson, globalization began, began with the Industrial Revolution in Europe and then in North America, which allowed folks to work extra hours in cities with lights now. You know, that market system, supply and demand really began there. And that launched globalization because now you're exchanging goods. I might have to rewind back a little bit because even during the colonial era of the, you know, 15th, 14th century, you know, excuse me, correct me on that one. 
you had wooden ships going across the oceans in search of spices and goods. That hasn't changed much. We just replaced those goods now with, of course, yes, spices, goods, coffee, chocolate. But now you're shipping anything you can think of from manufactured goods made in Asia, natural resources from the continents of Africa, Latin America, Polynesia, being shipped around the world for whatever market need there is. So globalization is happening all around us, right beneath our feet. We're, we're products of that and we're participants into that because we buy and we consume. Okay. Yeah. And so how do you plan on taking the charge to, okay. I guess, continue this globalization or to expand it? Okay. So um, I'm never going to be one of those individuals to uh, condemn globalization or industrial trade because the reality is, we do need some supplies to create things that we become become accustomed to as a society. And we're figuring out what basic necessities are. But don't get me wrong, we need those goods for, for specific uh, reasons, including medications, mm-hmm. uh, metals. Um, and, you know, I would, I would prefer to hear not, something else besides wood and lumber. You know, I'm a big fan of the rainforest. But what, it, what is required for the continuity of a revolution in the industrial sense is having this balance between ecology, that means the environment, and economics. And I'm, and I'm quoting some folks here. Um, I'd like to mention his name, Sadhguru. He's a very big, uh, prominent figure in spirituality from India right now. He has a big following, just so that I show respect to where I'm getting these words. Mm-hmm. In terms of what he was talking about, for India to proceed into the future with its spiritual and yet natural beliefs, it has to have that balance between economics and environment. How can every how can each place in the world acknowledge that without having to compromise too much of their well-being, their health, their clean water, their neighborhoods? Can they live a life, a, a, a decent life? Can they thrive more than just the basic needs of food and, and roof, shelter? Mm-hmm. Can we reach that level of higher fulfillment in terms of where I can start asking you the deeper questions? Your belly's not empty anymore. You're, you can really take time to learn a trade, a skill now. So... With all that background knowledge, um, a revolution for the globalization of tomorrow requires that balance, consciousness, and it requires an awareness that history repeats itself. And if we don't look into possible solutions with all that we know now at the palm of our fingers with technology and information at a, you know, a tap click away, mm-hmm. then we're not doing justice for a better tomorrow with a better balance for our health, our environment, and our dreams to really construct an empire of humanity, not commerce, but an empire of humanity in relation to the globe, which we didn't have before and haven't really had. Right, right. So on that note, how can we all as, as human beings be productive in this globalization adaptation or globalization um, change? You know, how can we be better and do better and do our part? so that economics is, is considered as well as the environment and I guess others. Like what, what, what should we be doing on the day-to-day? On the day-to-day. So on the day-to-day, first things first, we have to understand that in the developed world, countries in Europe, North America, mm-hmm. and countries in Asia, of course, uh, we're not just stuck on Europe and the U.S., um, we live a nice life of comfort and luxury 
at the expense of someone else around the world losing their health, their clean water, air, their native lands, so that we get some type of good, some type of wood or water directed our way. Mm. So that's the first thing, because that's an ugly truth, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, indigenous peoples around the world have been uh, asking for this attention for a long time now. You know, It's not just an ancient thing in a history book. Mm-hmm. We can talk about continental Africa all up and through with this same topic because we're talking about seizing knowledge, history, and lands for the sole purpose of economic thriving, uh, fulfillment, right? So be a, be a very educated consumer. There's nothing wrong with being a consumer, but be an educated one. That requires a little bit of part of research for us. Um, we need to become our own investigators, finding out if there's fair trade or the workers for that coffee plantation or tea plantation, whatnot, getting paid fair wages for their work that allows us to enjoy that cup of coffee at a Starbucks or that cup of tea in your comfortable home. That's at the labor of someone else. And I want to give a shout out to uh, Marley Coffee um, and, you know, the whole uh, Bob Marley empire, not only as a role model um, system for me, but because folks like Rohan Marley and, and the Marley Legacy have considered those things for their communities in Jamaica. Blue Mountain Coffee has had this renowned taste to it because there's love going into that. Mm-hmm. Those folks on uh, at the Blue Mountains are, you know, working those coffee plantations and they're able to now pay for their kids' education, the basic needs for their kids to go to school. And just know that we can here in the developed world build a better relationship that's not visible but it will be there if we just know where our products are coming from. We don't mind paying a little bit extra for something that has quality to it and fulfills a human purpose abroad. Okay. Does there need to be a leader, a specific leader of a revolution? I think a revolution or a momentum for social and health change requires everybody to step up into this position of leadership and take turns. Big one. Take turns because, let me put it like this, if the same leader uh, leads a movement for 20, 30, 40 years, or even, let's say, in a span of a a, a whole year, you're getting that perspective, Mm -hmm. that angle to the solution and the approach. In that time, that leader should be aiming to train a new evolutionary legacy of leaders that come in with fresh perspectives tradition based on change based on wanting to add creativity to the element it's a mixing pot of creativity and cooking and filming and and art has a lot to do with a revolution because it tells a story as a revolution happens and that story needs multiple angles and perspectives through a continuing continuing change of leadership and participation collaboration things that i think as a as a society a global society we struggle with because mm-hmm. again the ego gets involved and you know you want to fulfill your vision of that revolution but the revolution has to be shared and it has to be passed on consistent consistently hmm. now i don't know if you answered this particular question in that I, I part of me feels like it but some i ask you anyway please do um how necessary is it for people to be led by another 
when the charge is to create positive and productive change? Positive and productive change. Well, when that leader, he or she steps up into that position, there is positivity present. There is creativity present because those things were acknowledged by the folks that allowed that leader to be at that position to lead them. Mm-hmm. It is very necessary for that leader in that position to involve every other person in the process to not only add to the creativity, but to get some constructive feedback mm-hmm. because creativity is subjective, right? Yes. What one abstract painting looks to one looks completely different to the other. And I think that's the thing that has um, questioned leadership in the past many a times before. And if we want to think about change of leadership all across the world, it's a matter of just, I don't like that painting on the wall anymore. Can we change it? Or I don't see that painting the same way my grandfather saw it mm-hmm. 50 years ago. I see it differently now and I want something else to replace it. Mm-hmm. And when those sentiments arise, that's when a uh, revolutionary change occurs again. So I, I'm perhaps, maybe I'm not fully qualified to answer this question for you, but a revolution needs revolutionary steps to continue. <laughs> <laughs> it needs shaking up. It needs change. It needs honesty and genuine care because we're too quick to yell and scream at one another when that doesn't allow creativity to fuel somebody's passion. Yeah. I just had a thought while listening to you um, talk. It seems like revolution or change is relative as well, right? Uh, What I see, you mentioned the grandfather's painting. I may think that that painting needs to be changed or swapped out or taken out. The reality is that the painting could be beneficial, to others right but my thought is it needs to be changed and i'm like well this is the revolution and we need to do something different how do we determine what is the right revolution or the right change (laughs) because it seems like it is relative yeah (laughs) it is relative for that moment in time and uh, please uh, smack me across the head if I'm taking the conversation to somewhere else right no, now. Go, go right ahead. But in just previous conversations with the wonderful people in this room, um, photography, music. Oh, music, right? Do we like where music is at today? Do we like where photography and film is at today? Mm. Uh, I want to mention an individual, Anthony Bourdain. I think a lot of folks know who that is. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, may he rest in peace, well-renowned traveler. He gave us raw snapshots of the world. And when you talk about any specific place in the world and whatever social internal revolution is happening in that place and time, know, ladies and gentlemen, that you're looking at a snapshot. You're looking at a picture that won't necessarily mean much tomorrow. Mm -hmm. You captured that individual walking by that tree on a Monday afternoon but that's going to look completely different on a Saturday or a Friday. Yeah. So we can't disregard the past because history shapes our present and our future. 
it molds the attitudes and beliefs that allow us to think about new solutions for today. It takes a whole village to really sit down and properly have a conversation and inquire, ask themselves, are we doing this right? <laughs> are we going about this change in the right way? Mm-hmm. Did we slip up? And can we be honest if we did? And no need to point fingers here, but what can we do to help that individual over there so that they can fulfill their part in a change pattern so that it can lead to a larger change and a change that we can all accept and want? It's a question that goes back to what you asked me minutes earlier. What does it take the individual? What does it take for an individual to thrive internally? Mm-hmm. That requires everybody present at that table it requires them to ask themselves daily, am I doing the best that I can as a human being so that when I sit with my comrades, my, my fellow brothers and sisters or, you know, my friends, mm-hmm. are we at the best place in our health, mental health, emotional, social, physical, to sit down today and talk about what we can do collectively? If one of those pieces is fragmented, the old saying goes, it takes a village and a chair doesn't stand on just two legs. Mm. It requires all the components to be in place. And it's not guaranteed that those components are going to be all in place at that same time. Hence, that photographer might not capture that perfect image that will be in a museum in the future. It's special. It takes time, development, and it takes a symphony of collaboration. Mm. That was well, well put, well said. <sighs> yeah. had to take a beat on that (laughs) how do you think a leader is created oh a leader well i did talk a lot about community and village work Mm, right 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 so Um, in that community in that village was the leader created prior to the community and village or were they created in that instant in that moment it varies because not every leader ever had a village, a family unit, friends and family and social support to get them to that position. Mm-hmm. And that's some honesty for everyone because sometimes we are alone in the earliest times of our lives. And that's very unfortunate. I wouldn't want that for anyone. Um, but it is possible. So let's say for the sake of a, a different angle to this question, Let's say this person didn't have that village, uh, a strong foundation of, of values and, and, and fundamental um, uh, lineages of heritage to make them feel that they have some type of purpose. Mm-hmm. Well, this individual had to go out and about and figure things out on their own. And they had to get dirty. They fell down on their knees. They scraped up a little bit, bled, cried, cried many a times. It's okay to cry. Um, that's development of a leader. That's taking ownership of your life mm. because it's as simple as falling down and getting back up, right? Right. Easier said than done, though. So a leader is made at the moment of that pivotal getting up moment. Mm. I got up at the right time during the right accident that allowed me to stand up and face my demons whether it was facing that bully that was pushing me in my locker. Sounds like something out of the 90s or 80s movie. (laughs) I don't know if bullying still exists at that level today. Or was it at that moment where I stepped up to my, you know, now 
very you know lovely partner and i had the courage to speak up to them make eye contact and say hi i like you <laughs> right it, it, it really di- it differs for everybody it changes and you don't really recognize that moment but if you know you have butterflies you know you're in the right ballpark you know mm-hmm. what's happening but if you do have that foundation that village that community that can put you at that position to mold to cultivate please consider yourself blessed but please also know that you're not the only one to be cultivated and be developed mm. because a leader is being developed at the same time that other leaders are being developed. You didn't get there by yourself. And even if you didn't have the foundation, whoever helped you along the way to help you get up from the ground was that leader in the making at the same time, a leader that helps a potential leader becomes a leader themselves. Well said you brought a flag. What, what what flag is this that you brought? All right, ladies and gentlemen, I have uh, the Cuban flag in front of me right now. Okay. So you brought a Cuban flag and two books. One book is The Social Relation and The Cuban Health Miracle. And the other one, I, I can't really make out what it says. It's, it, uh, um, I'll translate it for you. Okay. It is a man that acts how he thinks. Un hombre uh, que actúa como piensa in Spanish. Okay. Explain the relationship between all of these uh, uh, items. Okay, so uh, an immediate uh, recognition, shout out to Charles R. Drew University in the Masters of Public Health program. Uh, all of South LA communities from Adams to Watts. I don't have to name all of them because I know that we know we all stand out as a one collaborative community. Mm-hmm. Um, so I mentioned this because I was very blessed and lucky to study public health in the country of Cuba, the island nation just 45 minutes away from Miami, Florida, um, without getting too much into the history of this country with the U.S., um, they haven't had the best relationship, different political ideologies and things that get complicated, I think, right? I look at that relationship of governments as a, a, a gray relationship between two partners that don't really know what they want in their lives, <laughs> Mm-hmm. And are very stuck in their ways and, and don't want to compromise and meet halfway um, to sound very neutral, right? So um, I was very fortunate to go on a public health mission to Cuba to learn their national public health system so that we can borrow elements and apply it here. Because despite the political differences and despite the, I would say, what you consider wealth differences in terms of money and what makes people happy or what allows people to thrive varies. This country is comparing to other developed countries of Europe, the U S Canada in terms of health indicators. What does that mean? Mm -hmm. Their people are living just as long as us a little longer. And actually they've eradicated some social and health issues that we are still having a hard time with. And, you know, I brought some notes here just to kind of mention a few, um, Prior to their revolution, and I'm I'm talking data and statistics here. I'm not okay. talking more of the political realm. Yeah, their literacy rate was forty percent prior to 1959. And mm. why do I bring reading and writing? Well, we need people to take ownership of their health by knowing how to gain the information needed to take better care of themselves and not rely so much on emergency services. Right? Mm-hmm. That's a big one. Their infant mortality. 
um, before that, before their revolution was more than or equal to 60 per thousand live births. Now in 2015, a more recent statistic, it's 4.3 per thousand live births. And this statistic matters because here in LA County and on a wide scale in the U.S., black women and black infants are still dying at high rates. Wow. Here in L.A. County alone, 2017 numbers, the maternal mortality rate for black women is 86 per per 100,000. And the infants are 10 per thousand live births. 10 per thousand U.S. black babies. And we have in Cuba, 4.3. So we have a developing country, an island nation blockaded through economic sanctions doing better than us, Hmm. doing better than us when it comes to treating the foundation and cradle of humanity, babies and mothers. And we know that is sacred. I think any culture, any people would agree that is sacred. So as a public health student forever, we went there to adopt their system, which is integrated to acknowledge every corner and angle of health. Their bio, psychosocial, bio for biology. How is their physical health? Okay, we're looking at blood pressure, right? We're looking for diabetes, hypertension. Their mental health, psychology, right? Hey, what's going on in our home, work, relationship, all that stuff. And social, how do you feel in your community? And how do you feel as a whole within your social culture? Do you feel acknowledged? Do you feel like a member of a, a, a bigger thing, something larger than you? Mm-hmm. Now, again, I'm not a department head at any medical, um, medical school here in the U.S., but from my interactions with medical professionals within my own work, with medical students, and with other members of academia, we're not training our doctors so much in that realm of, biopsychosocial health we are memorizing things very well we're specializing we're so quick to specialize and we don't really want to pause a little bit to do general family medicine or practice or a basic uh, what you would call i don't know a basic family physician mm-hmm. in cuba the every medical student is a family physician for at least up to five years in their same community most likely where they were raised and born so there's attachment there there's passion wow. there but there's this social piece of knowing the details and wanting to know the details to reach health levels of satisfaction, again, with basically no resources or still using medical equipment from the Cold War days of the 50s and 60s, which is something not to be proud about. and It's an unfortunate thing, but it just shows you that with basic awareness and acknowledgement of social conditions, you can maximize the physical health of people and help people live longer and better fulfilled lives. Right, right. Interesting. And earlier, uh, prior to recording, you had mentioned that someone, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, in Cuba gave you the flag and one of the books that you have, right? Right. And, uh, I, you know, so it was just a random person, a random person. I was with my colleagues exploring the town uh, in Marianao, which is one of the hoods, uh, neighborhoods in, in La Habana, Havana at two, three, something in the morning. Um, and this man sees me and I'm a very social cat. Like I like to talk to people, I think naturally. Mm-hmm. And just by greeting someone shows you just by greeting someone, this man 
went back to his home, knowing that I was a public health student, came back with this flag, which is stitched up and is as old as, <laughs> I don't know, a 1950s Cadillac or something. Yes. And came back with books personally written, written and signed for me because he thought that somehow they can relate to my life in the future. And that just shows something about global culture. Cuban culture, the Cubania, which you say in Spanish, is something unique of its own. I think every person should go to Cuba to understand the duality of a narrative, mm. film, photography, history. It's told differently no matter what. But I think any other person around the world would say, you need to find out for yourself. And when you find out that you can relate to other people, gifts are given to you that are beyond physical things, beyond a book and a flag. But these things are very special because... I told myself, you know, I don't really care for some worldwide fame. I want to figure things out so that I can add some type of contribution to the world. And if someone listening to this podcast or me having a conversation with a stranger, how can I somehow sprinkle my little health talk in there? How can I somehow sprinkle my little existential desire to learn more talk into that conversation? Because all of that is revolutionary. It's not politics. It's not a creed or a mantra of who should rule and who shouldn't. And I respect all sides of an argument. I really do because if we don't look at all sides, then what are we talking about? Correct. We're one-sided. But Cuba has a lot to offer the world because basically they are functioning and trying to thrive with almost nothing but their wonderful hearts, passion for life. And I leave it, this conversation on this end before you ask me another question. Think about it like this. That is the spread of music into the Western Hemisphere. Mm. The African slave trade hit the Caribbean islands before they hit mainland America. Son, rumba, salsa, hip-hop, reggaeton, R&B, cumbia, merengue. It don't matter what music genre you're talking about or dance style. It all spread from this little tiny island nation. And things continue to spread if you pay attention beyond health philosophies and health practices. Mm-hmm. What we can learn is how can we really be content with the basics, that is, human relationships. Yeah, nice. All right, so a few more questions. What makes a leader great and iconic? What makes a leader great and iconic? They say that some type of legacy or stamp in history is the thing that makes people that makes someone remembered. And uh, for all my movie people out here, I always uh, I use this as a as a joke, you know, Brad Pitt in that movie, Troy. And that's why no one will remember your name. <laughs> he talks about that because this kid asked him why he was going to fight this gigantic guy. But, you know, Achilles, Brad Pitt was like, "Nah, I want the bigger challenges in life. Mm-hmm. Hey, that's what it is. I want the bigger challenges in life. The bigger challenge, again, starts when you're born trying to figure out your place in this world. But the bigger challenges manifest and only grow in size as you get stronger. So a great leader only becomes greater as he, he or she bec- you know, accustoms themselves to facing dark water, taking dives, taking risk. And it's very scary. Mm. It's very scary. I think it kind of keeps us in our position of comfort many a time. So a great leader escapes comfort embraces the tribulations and obstacles and a great leader would say my opinion 
if I was to go today, pass away today, am I leaving the torch accessible to my following? Or is it going to be hard for people to attain this? Are they going to fight over it for control? Or are they going to fulfill what we built together? It can't stop because I'm gone. It continues. And that's the marathon. <laughs> hmm. Nice. Complete this sentence for me. I am the greatest version of myself when? I am the greatest version of myself when? Silence. But I am the greatest version of myself when I stop looking on the outside take the deepest look in and ask my personal connection with God, the creator and ask, actually say, thank you. I have what I need. I never needed nothing else. And sorry it took so long, but Hey, eventually I got here and I thank you for the greatest version of myself. Mm. Beautifully said. Final question. I call this the tabula rosa, which stands for blank slate. Um, so imagine the artist that you are, you have a blank canvas in front of you and you have all the colors that you could possibly want and need before you. And on this canvas, you're going to paint and design and architect a picture of your life. So now let me give you some background. You've created the revolution. You've globalized to the, to the fullest effect. You've helped and healed many people, many children. You've traveled the world. You've made all of the money possible. You've, you've done and created all the contribution that you could possibly make in your life and for your life. And you've had countless experiences, all that you've ever wanted to experience. So coming back to this blank canvas with these colors, what picture do you paint for your life? That doesn't take long to answer because I guess if things fall into place as things should fall into place, then I started asking myself this question two days ago at work okay. when I was revisiting an old, yes, I'm getting old, ladies and gentlemen, an old <laughs> reading rainbow episode <laughs> where you heard the story, the legend of the Indian paintbrush by tommy de paula and huh. any book expert can correct me if i butcher the name or title but i would paint with all the colors available to me the setting sun before nightfall i want those deep purples reds oranges elements of yellow showing that there's still sunlight in that dimming sky but it's it's fading away mm -hmm. why would i paint that because every sky has a vast beginning and a vast end, but there are beginnings and there are ends, despite how vast they are. That sun well set, and that means my time is up. Mm. But in my time, I saw the highest moments of people, of nature, of everything the world has to offer. And that sun was hovering above me for a long time. That sunrise was beautiful because it felt so fresh. You know, living in LA, 
you know that if you're trying to go for a walk or get some exercise in outdoors, you got to go out before 7 a.m. because it's hot. <laughs> and in Cuba, it's even hotter. <laughs> right. But there's something special about a sunset, whether you're looking at it at a beach or a mountaintop, whether you're in the Saharan desert making prayer or you're in the jungles of the Amazon, that's the same sky. Hmm. And up to that point of that setting sun, people thrived. They laughed. They cried. They danced. They played. They hugged. And that setting sun allows the opportunity for people to do that again or try it out the next day. It's a beautiful picture. I can see it. Thank you. Uh, clear as day. Now, I want to take a moment to salute you for all the work that you have done and all that you are continuing to do and will do. And it's such an honor to sit here and have this conversation with conversation with you. Uh, I've learned so much. You've caused me to think about a lot. Um, a lot of takeaways from me. And I hope the listeners feel the same way. So thank you for being the leader that you are and globalizing well, taking the charge to globalize and create this revolution across the globe and keep it up, man. You, you, you're phenomenal. Now, I want to give you a moment to put your information out there so that people can find you, help you, maybe inquire if they have some mental health issues or if they have kids that are on the spectrum. Um, how can they get in touch with you? Is there a website or you're on social media? Okay. Go ahead. Put it all out. All right. Uh, so everybody, don't butcher me, please. But as a mental health practitioner and as a individual trying to cleanse, I'm actually not on social media. Hey, <laughs> I, that's great. I removed myself um, over the last few years. I have a WhatsApp. I use Pinterest. <laughs> okay. But I don't use social media. So I'm going to have to be a little old school. I'm going to take you back to the year 1999 or 2002, where you actually have to contact contact me through an email address okay so um let's start with my last name letter m o l i n a period a l e x a n d at gmail.com and that is molina my last name period alexand as in alexander my first name at gmail.com and uh we can build from there and you know i might get back on social media um trying to uh, dabble with photography and and book writing so i will get back on there on the platform but you know i'm coming from the underground first i like it i like it you have any uh questions for me or any anything you want to add uh, i just want to say i'm honored to be here i'm honored to be part of this legacy that you have continued gave birth to and you're giving people the revolutionary tools to add to the whole collective experience of life and i'm thankful for you and your family and everyone present because this is god-given this is something that can't ever be replaced this is folks coming together to talk about the larger things of life and that's everything so thank you thank you we're out What a powerful conversation. Alexander's perspective on self-mastery being the illusion of the ego was a huge eye-opener for me. 
I think Alexander is right about us taking the charge to launch the internalized revolution for globalization. Let's take the time and consider our place within the collective movement. Take this charge and lead up. As mentioned, if you desire to reach out to Alexander, please do not hesitate to send him an email at Molina, that's M-O-L-I-N-A dot Alexander at gmail.com. Please share and rate this episode. And if you're interested in donating, simply go to the bottom of the lead up podcast description and click the donate link. As always, thank you for your continued support.